world and all who live in it. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to an idol. Such is the generation of those who seek you, O God, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. O God, we've come into this place today called by worship of a holy and an awesome God. We've been called to this place, O God, to consider where are we, each of us, in our recognition of who you are in all of your majesty. We declare that you are the creator of all. You are the giver of life. Therefore, the universe displays your fingerprint. And each of us, seven billion people, no two of us exactly alike, are the living evidence of an almighty God who's made us in your image. God, we've come to this place for the express purpose of meeting with you. And so we ask you now, God, would you speak your powerful truth into each of our lives? You know what each of us needs. Why don't you invite him to touch you this morning, my friends, right at the point of what God knows to be your greatest need. God, you know the people in this room who have come here discouraged, and they need you, O oh God, you to encourage them. You know the people who have come here this morning confused, and they need you, God, to speak truth into their lives. You know the people who've come, and they need to make major decisions that may affect the rest of their lives. They need to hear from you today, God. God, there are those in the room who are living with broken and frayed relationships, and so they have broken hearts, and they need your healing today. We're grateful, God, that you know each of us uniquely, and so you know exactly what each of us needs from you. And I'm asking, please, that you would touch us, teach us, transform us in these next moments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. You may be seated while I dismiss the children, the little ones up through grade four. <clears throat> we praise God for the adults who so lovingly teach our children every week. I was in Kansas City this week for a couple of days uh, of some global meetings with others who are interested to know what God's doing around the world. Uh, during one of the breaks in those meetings, I stepped out to give my wife a call on my telephone, and I looked at it, and it said, emergency calls only. Well, it wasn't an emergency, but I wanted to talk with my wife, and I'd never seen that before, so I dialed the number, and then it said, no service available. And I had this thought. How often do you suppose... God would like to tell you, even though you're calling out to me, you're in a place where there's no service available. I'm not hearing your cry. Aren't you glad to know there is no place on the face of this planet that God can't hear your voice? Amen? There is no situation in which you might find yourself where God can't hear your call. 
Then this thought occurred to me, if I remember correctly from my geography days, I think there are seven continents. Is that right? So what if God said, okay, I have an idea. Each of you continents, you pick a day of the week, and that's your day to talk to me. So uh, America, let's say you get Tuesdays. So on Tuesdays, all of us who live in North America, we can talk to God. Come Wednesday morning, you've got to wait a week. Because Wednesday's for South America, and Thursday's for... God doesn't work that way, does he? Anytime, any need. You and I are welcome to draw near to God because he loves you so much and knows what's going on in your life that he'd like you to come close so that you can build that relationship with him and that he can speak his truth into your life like he's going to do right now if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus in the Old Testament chapter 3. Because I'd like us to consider for a few moments, my friends, when we do draw near to God, what happens in that encounter? You'll see in your notes there, I've listed for you, as I thought about it this week, several motivations, several reasons why most people reach for God. I'm sure you would agree that when there's crisis or there's tragedy, just watch any news report from anywhere in the world, earthquake, flood, hurricane, tornado, people are crying out to God. Am I right? Why? Because they would like God's power to come in response to their tragedy. Or if you watch people who are fearful, fear or trauma, you'll find that people are reaching out to God, seeking Him because they need God's comfort. Or have you noticed that when you have a broken heart, when you have a broken heart in the privacy of that broken place, you reach out to God in hopes that he's going to be able to heal your broken heart, right? Do you find it's true that if you feel that you've been rejected or abandoned, especially by those people who should have loved you, you find a quiet place where you can reach out to God, God, do you still love me? Do you understand my pain? When you're confused or you've got important decisions to make, you reach out, God, I need your help, right? But I wonder if you'd agree that there are some barriers that stand in the way very often. One of them is rebellion. Have you noticed that if you're living a lifestyle that you know full well God is not pleased with, you're in rebellion against God, and then when you call out to him, not having to do with your rebellion, but because you'd like his help, does it kind of feel like there's something in the way? There is. Or have you noticed, my dear friends, when your heart is unforgiving, there's someone that you know you should get reconciled with, but you refuse to do that, and you call out to God, seems like something's in the way. There is. Sin of any kind is a barrier. But God says, I'm still inviting you to come to me, no matter where you are in your journey, but as you come, recognizing that I'm powerful and I'm healing and I'm loving and I'm accepting, I'm also a holy God. And if you've noticed, our worship leaders this morning have taken us on a wonderful journey of worship, acknowledging and recognizing the holiness of God. I could take you to lots of places in the Bible where people had encounters with a holy God and it was life-changing. Isaiah chapter 6, we sang about that. I see the Lord high and lifted up. But I've taken you to Exodus chapter 3, one of my favorites. It doesn't happen in a church in Exodus chapter 3. 
It doesn't happen with lots of other people around and beautiful musical instruments and worship. It happens out in the marketplace. Moses, it says. Now, Moses was tending the sheep, it says. You don't jump right into the middle of the story and try to figure it out, so let me set it for you. Egypt, just like modern-day Egypt, it was at that time the dominant power in the world, ruled by the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. Uh, one of the reasons it was so dominant is it had millions of slaves building all of those great things that are even still some of them today in Egypt. Among them, more than a million Hebrew slaves, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 sons, you'll remember. There were so many of them that the Pharaoh had said, we've got a serious problem here. They're multiplying too fast. So I have a solution. Let's kill them all, at least the boys, as soon as they're born. That'll slow down the population growth of the Hebrews. And so they did. But one dear young couple had a little baby, and God got a hold of their heart. They just couldn't allow that baby to be killed, so they tried to hide that baby as long as they could. And you can't hide a screaming little baby boy very long, right? And pretty soon... They had to acknowledge that there was a, an alive baby boy in their house, and so they built a little basket, you remember, and they put that little baby in that basket and put it out in the Nile River and said, God, we hope that somehow you'll find somebody to take our little baby so our baby could live. Pharaoh's daughter, you'll remember, had gone down to the Nile River with her entourage and sees this little basket floating by, and somebody picks it up, hits a little baby, and her heart was tender. She took that baby home, adopted that baby as her own, gave him the name Moses, called up from the river, and raised that baby in the palace of the Pharaoh, gave him the finest education available in his day, raised him to believe that he was a prince of Egypt. As a young man, evidently something welled up inside of him that let him know that that really wasn't his roots. And one day as a prince, as he's out uh, parading around, watching the slaves feverishly work, he sleaze a slave master beating a slave, a Hebrew slave, and something rises up inside of him, and he comes to the defense of that slave, and he kills the slave master, hides him in the sand. But word gets back to Pharaoh. There's rebellion in the royal family, and he's exiled. So out in the middle of the desert, years later, the story in Exodus chapter 3 begins. Now Moses was tending the sheep. I know my heart. How about the rest of you guys in this room? If that had been me, I would not have been sitting on the hillside saying, isn't it a beautiful day? Isn't this just the most wonderful job to have in the world? Likely, I'd have been saying, this is wrong. This is not right. I got the finest education available on the planet. I am a prince. I was trained to be a leader, to be royalty. I'm wasting my life out here on this desert. God, it's wrong. I wonder what the condition of Moses' heart really was. What Moses didn't know was that morning when Moses woke up, God in heaven was going, <laughs> Moses, today's the day. I've been waiting your whole life for this day. Has that ever happened to you? Where God rubbed his hands in heaven and said, Merrill, today's the day. I've been waiting your whole life for this day. Terry, today's the day. Ken, today's the day. Now think about that. If God is who he says he is, an eternal, all-knowing, sovereign God, don't you suppose that he knows what's going to happen Monday morning in your life and in mine and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? Could it be he's been working your whole life 
to prepare you for what's going to happen this next week, this next month. Moses, today's the day. Now, Moses didn't know that. Moses is out there with smelly sheep, but then he sees something he's never seen before. A bush is on fire. And so he approaches the bush, and he recognizes that the bush is not being consumed while it's on fire. And he realizes this is unusual. Something miraculous is happening here. Somehow God must be involved in this. Do you remember the last time that you were in that place? Maybe holding a brand new little baby where the doctors had told you, you better abort because this baby's going to be a mess. And the baby was born perfect, and you're holding that baby in your hand. And you were aware God is here. Huh? Or you stood at a vow renewal ceremony between a man and a wife who had separated in such anger against each other, but God's brought them back together and they stand before their friends and they renew their vows, huh? Moses approached that bush, wondering what's happening here. God must be doing something here. And the bush spoke his own language and named his name. Moses, not just once but twice. Moses, I would presume it was speaking Egyptian. Moses responded, I'm here. That's significant. Instead of running, he's realizing something's happening that I don't want to miss here. This is so beyond my ability to explain logically, God must be in it. I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to step into it. And the bush says, Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. As far as I know, the first time in the Bible where God said, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. Oh, God had had great encounters with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others. But here God says, Moses, this is so significant. This is a holy place because I'm here. Take off your sandals. When is the last time that You had an encounter with God in worship like this morning, perhaps, or in your private prayer place, and you were so overwhelmed by the awesome majesty and the holiness of God, you didn't know what to do. Maybe you laid flat on the ground. Maybe you knelt. Maybe you took off your shoes. Maybe you started to weep. But you were so awed by the presence of God and his holiness. Moses, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and you see what it says there in the sixth verse I believe it is and Moses hid his face he was afraid to look at God as I read that again this week my friends and pondered that I asked myself the question God all across the United States of America how many of us who call ourselves Christians or at least call ourselves religious people How many of us would respond that way? How many of us have such a small picture of God, we so easily minimize him or marginalize him that when God is calling us to an encounter with him, we miss it or we disregard him? But here Moses is so awed by him, he hides his face. And do you see what it says? God responds, I have seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cry. And what does it say next? And I am concerned. Question. Does God see you where you are every day of your life? Answer, yes. Does God understand everything that's going on every moment of your life? Answer, yes. Does God care? Answer, yes. 
I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cries, and I care about it. I'm concerned, so I'm going to do something about it. You see what it says? I have come down. I've come here to rescue them and to bring them up out of their slavery into a good land. Can you see Moses standing there saying, well, that's great, but what does it have to do with me? Verse 10, and so I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. You see what's happening here. Uh, First, Moses is aware that something's happening here. A bush is burning and it's not being consumed. God must be here doing something. Then Moses perceives he's being invited into an encounter with God. His name is spoken from the bush. Thirdly, he has an encounter with God where God explains who he is, tells him to take off his shoes because he's in the presence of God. Fourthly, he begins to have a transformation that God is doing, a change in his heart and his mind. He hides his face, recognizing that he is not a holy man. He's killed a man. He shouldn't be in the presence of God, much less God speaking to him. But then God says, I want to involve you in what I'm doing, Moses. You and I are going back to Pharaoh, and together we're going to lead those million people out of slavery. Moses, of course, says, there's just no way. I I can't possibly... When they question me, what am I going to say? And he says, you tell them, I am has met with you. The great I am has met with you, and you're going to bring them back to this place, and you're going to worship God here on this mountain. And then you're going to live as God's holy people. So Moses courageously went back, and you remember the next chapters that follow Tell us the story of the plagues. You remember them? As God modeled, demonstrated his unlimited power and his personal attention to what was going on with his people. You remember that he brought them out, the angel of death, remember? The opening of the Red Sea, the provision of the manna, water from a rock over and over and over again, showing his people how much he loved them, how much he cared for them, and that it was accomplishing his purpose, and he was involving them in it. And then you come to Exodus 19. Would you turn there with me? Because that's only a few months later, and they arrive back at that very same mountain where the burning bush had been. Now there's a million of them there at the base of the mountain and pitched in their tents. Moses runs up the mountain to meet with God again. God says, Moses, here's what I want you to tell the people. Verse 4, you have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you here to myself. Now... If you obey me fully, and if you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations on the face of this planet, you will be for me my treasured possession. I will value you more than any others. I I have great purpose for you more than any others. Do you see what it says next? Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're having an encounter with a holy God. And God's calling them to recognize, as a result of this encounter with a holy God, you will now be a holy people. And a people who will draw all the rest of the world to know me because of the relationship we have. You will live as a holy people. A little later on in that chapter, you find that in verse 17, Moses led the people out of the camp to go and meet with God. And God actually spoke audibly to them. Do you see the first verse of chapter 20? And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And then God goes on and he tells them all of what we know to be the Ten Commandments. What he was saying to them was, because you're going to be a holy people, here's what it looks like. 
to live like a holy people. I will be the only God who is your God because there is no other God. So you'll worship me. You don't make any other idols. And the relationships you have with other people will be God-honoring relationships. So honor your parents and don't kill one another and, and don't covet each other's spouses and on and on. Now look carefully at how the people responded. Verse 18 of chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us yourself, but, but don't have God talk to us. It, it's too frightening. You go up there and meet with God and come back and tell us what he said. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you. You see what it says? To keep you from sinning. If you like to underline in your Bible, even though that's way Old Testament, underline that. Why? It is your awe of God, your respect for God, your understanding of God's holiness that will keep you from living a life of rebellion against that God. Right? Because, you see, when you and I turn away from God, what we're saying is, God, I don't care about all your wonderful holiness. I want to do what I want to do. In our day, we're saying, in Jesus, I don't care about the cross and the, the pain that you experienced and the death that you died. I want to do what I want to do. We need to understand, my dear friends, that when God calls us to be a holy people, when we drift from that, we are disregarding who he is, holy God. What he has accomplished for us, our redemption, we're holding up our hands with clenched fists saying, I'm going to do it my own way, even if it's wrong. You see that there again? The fear of God will keep you from sinning. So how's your respect for God? How's your understanding of his holiness? And are you able to discern when any thought is coming in your mind that is tempting you to step away from what you know to be right and God-honoring and pursue another path, there's a check in your spirit that says, if I do this, I'm turning away from the holiness of God. I'm turning away from the cross and what Jesus accomplished for me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit who gives you that check in your spirit and says, don't go there, come back. In your notes there, you'll see that I quoted out of Leviticus chapter 20 for you. Uh, two or three specific examples I'd like to give you that we should be cautious about. First, I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists. You see it there? You and I live in a world, my dear friends, where there is a fascination with the spirit world. Lots of movies being made, and this is the time of the year where Americans do very strange things. If you've ever lived in another part of the world or spent much time, this weekend has the rest of the world scratching their heads and saying, what kind of intelligent, well-educated Americans put tombstones in their front yards and hang skeletons from their trees and then take their children around from neighbor to neighbor as though it's some kind of a game? I I've had to answer those questions in lots of countries around the world. I've had to say, it's Halloween, just disregard it. We lose our minds as a nation for a weekend. There is no logical explanation. Except we are always looking for something to make fun of that has behind it great danger. 
And so we take our children, don't we, all across the nation this week and next to watch some of the scariest movies that could possibly be made, and they can't sleep at night, and they come running in to jump with mom and dad, and mom and dad say, what's the matter with you? Go back to bed, and they're having nightmares. And when you've worked with people who have a stronghold of the demonic in their lives, then you understand that it's gone from a game to very serious, life-threatening stuff. That's why God said, and it's pretty harsh language, I will turn my face away from, against those who dabble in the darkness of that dark world. Be very careful. Ouija boards, tarot cards, palm reading, all of it. Understand, God has said, I'm a holy God. And I'm calling you, if you want relationship with me, to be a holy people and draw the line and stay away from that stuff of the darkness. Amen? Because it'll get a hold of your heart. There's a second thing that'll get a hold of your heart, and you and I both know it. It's immorality. Galatians chapter 5, I have it there for you. The sinful nature and the spiritual nature are in conflict with one another. And you and I live in a world where we are immersed in it, aren't we? Do you have the ability to say, no, it's time to change the channel on the television? No, we're not going to watch that movie. No, we're not... Why? Because it's putting into our minds suggestive images and language that turns our hearts away from a holy God. No, we're not going down that path. Amen? Because if you don't, when you least expect it, those images pop up again in your mind. And when you're weary and you're vulnerable, your heart begins to follow away from your family, right? And the dark kingdom knows it well. And then there's a third one. It's what happened to those uh, wonderful Hebrew slaves who were experiencing the power of God in such a great way in Exodus 19. You may remember that Moses went back up the mountain to meet with God, and he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights meeting with God. And God was explaining, this is what it's going to mean to be a people of God. I want to come and dwell among you, so build a place, a tabernacle where I will meet with you. And here's how you worship me. It didn't take very long, and those slaves said to one another, what happened to Moses? He went up that mountain. He hasn't come back. Guess he died up there. What are we going to do now? And it didn't take long, and folks were saying, let's build some gods like we had back in Egypt, golden idols, and let's worship them, and let's go back. You find yourself, you miss a Sunday or two or three, you get really busy with life. You haven't been in God's Word for several days. You find yourself in a desert place where it seems like you're far away from this rich, wonderful relationship with a holy God who loves you. It happens pretty fast, doesn't it? That's what happened here. Idolatry. When you allow other things to become more significant in your life than a holy, majestic God who made you and loves you. God said to Moses, you better go down, Moses. Those people who promised that they'd be my people, they've turned away and they've actually fabricated a God. Moses went down, you remember, and he crushed that idol, challenged the people. The people cried out, oh, please, uh, Moses asked God to forgive us. Moses goes back up and spends another 40 days with God interceding for them. And God says, even though they're a stiff-necked people, I, I will forgive them, but you leave this mountain and you go on out into the desert, and I'm not going with you. And Exodus 33, Moses says, God, God, please no, anything but that. Don't send us out without you going with us. 
if you don't go with us, what else will distinguish us from all the other people on the face of the planet? I've heard you cry. I will go with you and I will lead you into a new land. When Moses came down from that mountain that last time of 40 days and 40 nights, his face was radiant. He didn't know it, but the people had to shield their eyes. Moses, your face, it's beaming. Why? The Bible says because he had been speaking with God. When's the last time, my brothers, that your wife said, Hasn't happened to me either, by the way. <laughs> but wouldn't you like it to happen just once? What would that be like? To be in the presence of God where it is so awesome that it actually changes you. You come out from that place a different person. That stuff that used to haunt you, that secret stuff that nobody else knows about, it's gone. It's gone. The shame and the guilt of the past, even though you've asked forgiveness a hundred times, it's gone. The sense of the presence of God is so thick. You never want to leave it. Jesus said to his disciples, I know it's been good that I'm here with you, but, but I need to go. But I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of God. And he won't just be with you. He will be in you. The tabernacle, the temple, is now replaced with the temple, where the Spirit of God is living in the people of God. So that everywhere you and I go, God is there. Every marriage of two God-honoring people, God is there. Every family, a God-honoring family, God is there. Every business transaction with a God-honoring man or woman, God is there. And that's why Peter, when he writes to the to the new believers scattered around the difficult persecution world of the first century, very similar, by the way, to what's going on today in some parts of the world. Have you noticed what was called the Arab Spring? It began in Tunisia, then it moved to Egypt, and it moved to Libya. Have you noticed what has happened to the Christians in those places after the leaders have fallen? In every case, the Christians are being persecuted like never before, and they're scattering, churches being burned to the ground. A great persecution has broken out in the Middle East against your brothers and your sisters. Peter was writing to people just like that. When he writes, and you see it there in your notes, prepare your minds for action, 1 Peter chapter 1, and be self-controlled. Mm. Set your hope fully on the Lord Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that are all around you, that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he 
who called you is holy. So you be holy as God's people in all you do. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that you lived before, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, chosen before the creation of the world to be your Savior. A holy God inviting normal people to become a holy people. It happens when we understand who he is and we see ourselves through his eyes, not making any excuses for ourselves anymore. How was it that those million people so quickly turned away from God? They looked around and they compared themselves to each other and to the place where they had, had left and they said, well, we're not so bad. But God had said, you don't compare yourselves to each other, you compare yourselves to me. I'm a holy God, and I'm calling you to be a holy people. You'll always be able to find someone else that will help you make an excuse for yourself. You challenge yourself to be a holy man, a holy woman, a holy teenager, because you have a relationship with a holy God. Amen? One of my favorite authors, as you know, Henry Blackaby, lost the page. That's not good. But I know it so well I can tell it to you. He writes that as he was growing up as a boy, he recognized that his father, who was a Christian businessman, happened to be in the banking business, among other things, had built for himself a remarkable, impeccable reputation as a man of integrity and a man of character in the marketplace. And one day, Mr. Blackaby called Henry and his brothers together and he said, sons, I've spent a lifetime building my reputation as a God-honoring businessman in this community. When you step outside the door of this house, no matter what you're going to do, you are carrying my name and my reputation with you out there. In school, in your part-time job, in college, be careful what you do with my reputation. I've had the privilege of meeting Henry Blackaby. I've asked him about that. He told me that that thought, the thought that his poor choices might damage the reputation of his father, knowing how much his father was respected, kept him back many times from doing some really stupid things as a teenager. But I've seen the tears run down his eyes when he says, but my fear of humiliating my human father is nothing compared to my fear of humiliating God. I carry the reputation of God with me everywhere I go because I claim to be a Christian. And that frightens me more than anything else. That my words, that my attitudes, that my decisions, especially out there in the marketplace, would reflect so poorly on God that people would actually say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, not for me. What about that? 
for you and me. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, who has called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light of truth and holiness. Be a holy people, and it will draw a world to a holy God because they are immersed and drowning in an unholy world, right? So let's talk to him. And God, as we speak with you now, we don't come rushing into your presence with our little grocery list of needs. God's, please do this, this, and this, and then run out. We come carefully, cautiously, respectfully into your presence, as Moses did. And we ask you, please, holy God, to speak to each of us. Help us see ourselves for who you see us to be. Help us see, O oh God, where each of us is vulnerable, where we have been making excuses for ourselves. Help us see, please, God, where and if we have actually been placing your reputation at risk as we live our lives. God, we turn from that stuff in our lives that separates us from you. We repent of it. We ask you to cleanse that junk out of our lives. We ask you, God, to, to fill us afresh and anew with your spirit, your Holy Spirit. We ask you, please, O oh God, to guide us carefully in our lives and to involve us as you did, Moses, in the much bigger purpose that you're accomplishing in our world. Why don't you ask God to show you what needs to change in your life if you're going to really be a God-honoring man or woman who's not in any way risking God's reputation. And whatever he shows you, I urge you to be courageous enough to give it over to him. Release your grip on anything that has been drawing you away from him and determined to be a God-honoring man and a God-honoring woman by yielding yourself fully to his great work in your life. God, we're awed to consider ourselves the people of God. It, it really is almost beyond our comprehension that you would redeem us from our lost way of life you would save us, you would cleanse us, and then you would commission us to go out and live our lives bearing your name. But as we close our time together, we sing that great song with a great, wonderful sense of assurance and confidence that even though none of us in this room is worthy, if you will have us, oh God, we would love to be your people. And if you will empower us and guide us, Oh, God, we'll do the best we know how to do to follow you and to live our lives for your great glory and your honor. And so we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.